When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. We've got a special episode this week. Colonel John Waddy, former head of the SAS, who conducted daring missions during the Second World War and the Cold War, well, he sadly passed away a few months ago at the age of 100. But his career was truly remarkable. In this episode, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, Dan spoke with Colonel Waddy specifically about his experiences during the Second World War. As a paratrooper, he moved through Palestine, Tunisia and Italy until Operation Market Garden, where he was wounded several times during that ill-fated attack on Arnhem, in which three quarters of his battalion were killed or captured. In fact, he was captured and held prisoner under the Nazis. This is a truly special episode as we hear about the experiences of war, with no punches pulled, from a remarkable soldier and leader. Enjoy. What, how old were you when you when you joined the army? Nineteen. And this was what year? Thirty-nine. Before the outbreak of war. Yes. Mm. Why did you join the army? My family had been in the army for about three hundred years. Did you think war was likely at that point? Yes. Oh yes. Mm. But that and that didn't. Were you? I mean, was as a nineteen-year-old, were you excited by the prospect or worried or? Excited, I suppose. I know, remember when my father came to the passing out parade at Sandhurst, he was very non-committal, but he'd been through the First World War. He saw it, the next one coming. He must have watched all the cadets passing out and wondering what was going to happen to them. So do you think, did he try and discourage you at all? No, no. He just accepted it? Yeah. I was sent out to the battalion of the Somersets in India, so I didn't go to France. Otherwise, I might have finished up in the bag, like the rest of them. There wasn't any fighting at that point in India, so were you actually were you a bit bored? Were you thinking I'd rather be over in the European theatre, or, or or the Middle Eastern theatre? Yes, I mean, first year, year or so in India, it's like sort of life in Saab's life for the last two or three hundred years. We had a very good commanding officer to start off, a chap called John Hardy, 
little little man, became a field marshal, brilliant soldier. And I remember reading a letter he wrote when I was acting adjutant when he was posted to the Middle East, saying, I'm now a senior of Somerset's in, in India as a major coal. On no account should be allowed to take over from me. Who arrived? Major Cole, morale of the battalion. Went. And then a few months later, the thing went round saying they were going to form a parachute brigade of a British and Indian and a Gurkha brigade in India. They asked for volunteers. I think more than half of the battalion volunteered. Fortunately, I was accepted, so I, I got out of it. Can I ask you about India? While you were there, did it feel like the end of the Indian Empire was close? No. no. It just felt like the most natural thing in the world that there was a, a, a British mm. commanding presence in India. That's right, yeah. I mean, the first two years of the war out in India, we lived a life like one's father, grandfather, etc. had lived. And it felt like it would keep going on like that forever. Yeah, and the soldiers were like the soldiers one read about in Kipling's books, etc. Or long-term regular soldiers drink, drink and and prostitutes. Tell me about the parachute, this new parachute brigade. Were you then sent to the Middle East, presumably? Not immediately. I mean, we looked like being stuck out there for the rest of the war because they said they were going to keep 25 regular British infantry battalions in India in case of any trouble. So we looked like being stuck for the rest of the war under this useless commanding officer we had. Um, And then suddenly the thing came round saying they're going to form a a parachute brigade in India of a British, an Indian and a Gurkha battalion. So I volunteered and fortunately I was accepted in 1941, I, I, I went to this new parachute battalion that was f- forming in, uh, in Delhi. And was sent to the Middle East, presumably? After about a year. We were, we were trained there intermittently because there weren't many aircraft. Um, well, I suppose we, would, we were part of the Indian Parachute Brigade, which had a British, an Indi- Indian and a Gurkha parachute battalion. And I suppose we we would have, we were destined for Burma, but fortunately the British battalion was we were sent to the Middle East. And when did you arrive? Nineteen forty-two. Before Alamein, or just just after Alamein. So did you take part in the great sweep across the North African desert towards Tunis? No, we hoped to, but the aircraft for so short that the Eighth Army. Said, I'm sorry, but we can't afford any any of these newfangled parachutes. We, we want to use it for supply. So what did you do? Sat in our asses. <laughs> they used you, did they use you as infantrymen, or just they kept you back in Cairo? We went to Palestine and uh, formed a, a, a parachute brigade around us with two other battalions under a, a magnificent man called Shan Hackett, whom you may have heard of. What was it like being in Palestine when there was, a, when there was a, a, a big shooting war going on in North Africa and elsewhere. Did you, were you frustrated or were you rather enjoying it? Well, we enjoyed the life there, but uh, no, we, were fr- we wanted to get into the war. Everybody did. Oh, not everybody, a lot of them were quite content to what was known as a short-range Cairo group. Uh, they were quite happy to sit back in Cairo and Middle East. 
I heard Cairo was quite the quite the flesh pot back oh, then. That and Alexandra was worth the Australians and New Zealanders, the South Africans, so called. It was quite a quite a place. <laughs> I mean, what's it's always hard for me to get a handle because we grew up believing that your generation was hugely strict when it came to morals and and personal behaviour. I mean, was how 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 would people behave in Alexandria, for example? Was the nearest brothel. No, I mean, the British Army in my days was the same as it had been in Kipling's days and before, drinking women. And, and was there opportunity? I mean, what, what about the women that came out from the UK? Were they, were they part of this? Was there a sort of loosening of, 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 of moral behaviour because the war was on? Was there an excitement in the air? There was a loosening of, of moral behaviour, certainly, yes. Mm. Uh, right, so when did you, did you, did you jump into Sicily or, or southern, southern Italy? No, sadly, no. We, we had a rather frustrating time when our parachute battalion came from India to the Middle East. We formed a parachute brigade around us with two more battalions, commanded by a superb soldier called Shan Hackett, you may have heard of. And I was on his headquarters, actually. And we had a rather frustrating time. We trained and planned operations in Greece and Yugoslavia, etc. Then we, we went to North Tunisia, then we planned for operations in Sicily and Italy and so on. Until finally we went into Italy as, a, as an airborne division. Did you jump in or did you just go as <laughs> mechanised infantry? Or? We went in on um, six Royal Navy and American Navy cruisers. And did you see combat then for the first time? Yeah. Mm. And that had been a long time coming for you. I mean, was, that a, was that an important moment for you? Yes, it was, yes. We'd, we'd been stuck in India and, and in, in order to get into the war, join the parachute unit. And then, of course, inevitably in a parachute unit, you sit around waiting to be used. And in the Middle East campaign, the, the, the general said, oh, well, we, we want every aircraft uh, we, we've got to carry supplies. This is when the 8th Army were going, going, going across Tunisia, etc. Which is right. I mean, transport aircraft were few and far between. But when you when you when you entered combat for the first time, were you worried about how the, how you would perform? No, it all seemed natural. Here we go. And what what are your memories of that first? Where where was it in southern Italy that you first met met with the enemy? Taranto. The the airborne division went into Taranto aboard six six cruisers. We sailed into Taranto harbour and uh, followed followed up. Well, quite rightly, the 1st German Parachute Division. They were fighting a very skillful withdrawal operations up Italy, and we, we followed them up. Was that, was that particularly tough fighting? Not, no, no. Mark, I mean, the German Parachute Division, 1st German Parachute, were very skillful troops. They, they were very, their tactically and their weapon handling was, was very good. But they, they, were, they were good soldiers. But you didn't sustain terrible losses? or No. I remember I was on the 4th Parachute Brigade staff. I, I went up to, after being in action, take over some German prisoners and do a quick interrogation. And of course, there were six German parachutists from the 1st German Parachute Division being guarded by a little parachute soldier. I remember going up and said, I'll take over. And this little man said they'd been talking like he'd been talking to these six German parachutists. You know, as if they were sort of the next door battalion. I went up, and he said, eh, 
these fuckers had it on five fucking jumps. <laughs> really? So they, yeah. I, you thought they'd, be, they'd done more, wouldn't you? After the creek disaster. Yeah, they just stopped. And in, in fact, looking at their, their, pay, their pay books, German pay books are very interesting. All the soldiers carried them and they contained all the details of various postings and where they'd been. Most of these parachutists we'd fought in Italy were, had taken part in, in the creek operation, which Hitler after that, I believe, said he'd never do another airborne operation. But they were, they were skillful troops, the first German parachute division. Did you ever think that you were going to die, or do you think it was something that occasionally happened to other people? Yes, you, you don't think there's anything going to happen to you at all. And, and when did, so when did Italy come to an end for you? It's about uh, December 43. The, the first airborne division and the seventh armoured division and two other divisions all, all returned to UK at the end of 43 to take part in the D-Day operations, I suppose. Well, you, I mean, Northwest Europe. You were finally back in the in the main theatre. You must have been you must have been quite excited about that. Uh, yeah, I suppose we were. I was commanding a company then. We were, we, the first airborne division was billeted in villages and towns all around East Anglia, Lincolnshire, Leicestershire, etc. And uh, we were very, very hurt that we didn't take part in D-Day. When, when were you told you wouldn't be jumping on D-Day? We knew nothing about D-Day until it took place. Okay. And we thought, bloody hell, six airborne division, they are youngsters. And why do you think they held, why do you, think they held you back? We were... I mean, the six airborne, I mean, it's quite logical that they should be given the job of D-Day because, you know, they, it took over a year to, to plan it in great detail, the, the job of the six airborne division in Normandy, etc. And we were then in North Africa or Italy, or it's quite right, give the Normandy job to the six airborne division because they'd been in England and they'd trained and planned the operation in, in, in detail. So what was your training like in Lincolnshire and East Anglia? I mean, were you, were you training to attack certain targets or was it just general just general yeah. yeah and you could have been told to get on the plane for an active operation at any time you, you yes mm. how, how did you was it difficult motivating how did you keep the keep the men focused because you know week after week not not going on active operations was that difficult it was getting a bit difficult towards the end i mean around about um, august 44 september soldiers were getting a bit edgy you know wouldn't be going to get into this fucking war etc and uh, I remember the first day of the Arnhem operation. We, we went in on the second day. The first morning we saw all the Dakotas orbiting around. So we, we knew the first lift was off. The operation was on. Because we, were you regularly told that you'd be going on an operation and stood down at the last minute? Was it, so was, there was a pattern? Yeah, it was very frustrating indeed. First Airborne Division uh, from D-Day up to Arnhem planned 16 operations of which about only six or eight came down to us. And it was very frustrating. You, We were given the orders. I was a company commander. You um, gave orders to your company on sand models and air photographs, etc. Then it'd be a 24-hour stand-down and another 24-hour stand-down and then a cancellation. And after about a dozen or 15 of these things, morale of the Airborne Division was getting a bit edgy because we were all old soldiers been been in North Africa or India or Italy, etc. And morale was a bit low. But then, in September, you did get into the war. Yeah. So you so you saw the Dakotas flying, so you knew this was it was going to happen. Yeah. And what was that? Was it was it very exciting flying over the coast of occupied Europe, knowing that this was the one, or was it terrifying? Uh, she's been casual. 
to say that, you know, we thought, well, here we go, this is all right. And did, what were your expectations on what you would meet when you landed? Don't suppose we thought about it much, except, except the, the briefing was, was very detailed. This is uh, the RNOP, when we finally went in, this, I think it was the 16th operation that the 1st Airborne Division had, had been briefed and planned for since D-Day. And it, it had come down to the soldiers, to the battalions, about six or eight times. And morale was getting a bit, uh, bit edgy. Because um, uh, the 1st Airborne Division were all fairly experienced soldiers. They'd been in North Africa or Italy, etc. But were you, were you told that there would be a Panzer Division in Arnhem, for example, re-equipping? Re we were told there were, yes. Oh, there were. So you were expecting tough opposition? I suppose we were. It was a question, let's get into this fucking war. And tell me about, the, tell me about jumping out of that aircraft. What, what was it like doing it, doing it for real, for the, for, the fir, for, for the first time in combat, jumping out of the aircraft? I can, I can still remember it. We, we flew in these vast formations of aircraft. You know, what the Americans call Vic of Vic, nine aircraft in a, in a V, aircraft stacked up behind. I, I, I think it, it, soldiers were, were very relaxed. They thought, at last, we're in this bloody war. And uh, flying over there, like the British soldiers, is a fairly nonchalant sort of chap. And uh, we flew over the North Sea, over northern Holland, where we got a bit of flak. Didn't seem to bother the soldiers at all. Was your heart pounding? No. It was all part of the bloody job. I mean, we'd been in the war for several years. This is part of it. But I mean, part of relief, but thank God, at last we're in, in, in an operation. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
And then how soon after you jumped out of the aircraft, did, where, where, did, where, did, where was your landing zone? Was it one that was contested or, or did you have a fairly smooth landing? No, it was contested, but, but two thirds of the dropping zones were surrounded by, by the enemy. And there was quite a lot of fighting on, on the dropping zone. So you were straight into it? Yes, yeah. And, and was that expected? You were ready for that? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, we'd, we'd planned and stood to for so many operations from D-Day onwards. It was all, all part of it. Well, is it. Is it rather dispiriting to be dangling from a parachute with someone shooting at you from the ground? There's not much you can do about it. Not dispiriting is a question of, you know, <laughs> let's get to the bloody ground. There was quite a lot of, quite a lot of fighting on the dropping zone. And as we came in, in these big V formations, nine aircraft stacked up. Um, my aircraft was on the left-hand side and we were being fired on. The Germans were actually firing at the doors of, of the aircraft. Fortunately, when two and a half thousand men descend on an area, they, they quite quickly buggered off. And you managed to get your company together quite quickly, did you? Or was it quite disorganised? What was the scene like? It was very organised. We, we used to practice what was known as DZ drills without aircraft and sometimes we used to do it with aircraft, the diesel drill and each battalion or brigade had a different rondi around this, this big heath area in Holland. We had cloth models of the dropping zone and air, air photographs and maps etc and it was a thing of the airborne division. You briefed every man fully on the operation. It wasn't a question of private soldiers, you know, they'd do it with their bloody toe thing in the Airborne Division, everybody had to know the whole plan, briefed in, in detail, because there's no knowing whether they'll be on their own or not, or whether they're officers or sergeants who will be killed or wounded. So, so, you, so, the prepar so you felt, when you hit the ground, you knew the plan, you, the, the organisation was good, so it was, you felt the whole thing had been well prepared? Yes, it, we, we were very well-trained division. It was going like clockwork. And then did you head for the bridge? Not a, no, uh, the 4th Parachute Brigade uh, was heading for um, north of Arnhem, which is one of the big mistakes, of, so many mistakes on that operation. plan made by our divisional commander was, was, was wrong. He knew about the German armour north of Arnhem, but he made no plan to, to, to cut it off. Our aim at Arnhem was all devoted to get, getting to the bridge. No one part of the division should have landed north of Arnhem to block the roads leading into Arnhem to stop the German panzers coming in. And the remnants of those panzer divisions had been trained in Russia and Normandy in anti-airborne operations. So as soon as the first troops landed, they formed themselves into these special companies they had, and they were on the move. When did you first meet the German armour? The first parachute brigade. We came in on the second day. And by the time you landed, what was the... Were, were things... Um, had things bogged down a bit? I mean, did you, have the, did you have the ability to move to where you were supposed to be? No, because the Germans moved very quickly. I remember a story afterwards of our brigadier, Shan Hackett, a very astute little man. He, in, in the briefing, two or three days before Arnhem, the orders were given out. And then he dismissed everybody except the commanding officers. And he said, right, what you have heard will not happen. Our hardest fighting is going to be getting into Arnhem because 
he was an experienced soldier. I mean, he, he knew one of the things about the German army. If the, a vital area is threatened, they will move swiftly to defend it, which, of course, they did. So you now, you landed and you faced a fight to get into Arnhem. Yeah. And how, and how did, uh, tell me about the course of that battle. Well, foolishly, we, we landed seven miles away from the, our bloody objective. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, one of the lessons learnt, well, at least one, one hopes it's been learnt for the future, you know, you must land as close as possible to your objective. And we were there seven miles away. As Shan Hackett, when he briefed, when he gave his briefing back in England, or his brigade major did the general brief, and he said, all right, uh, commanding officers stay behind. I want the rest of you to fall out. And he said, all right, now what you've heard is not going to happen. Our hardest fighting is going to be getting into Arnhem. And, and how hard was that fight? Bloody hard. His brigade was wiped out. You were, were you in that brigade? Yeah. And Shan Hackett, as brigadier, finished up and about after two days fighting in the woods with a rifle and bayonet as a brigadier. And, and what about you? What was your? How were those two days for you? What was your experience of them? We, uh, our, our job, having led in the second day, was get to the north of Arnhem. And by that time, the, the Germans were, were well established. They had trained in Russia and Normandy in anti-airborne operations, this particular Panzer Division. So as soon as the first troops landed, they formed themselves into these quick reaction companies and they moved down. So you were fighting... German tanks armed with rifles and grenades? Yes. Well, we did have some six-pounder, but uh, they were you know, very difficult things to manoeuvre up in the front line when you were uh, advancing. It's always in, in, in defence. Did your company su survive? How did it fare? They were disintegrated. We landed on the second day, and, of course, the Germans... The, the, I mean, uh, their generalship is good. They, they realised that uh, we were heading for the bridge. I mean, we were landed eight miles away from Bloody Bridge. And the Germans quite quickly put in their, their, their stopping lines, they called them, with tanks and armoured cars, etc. And we had nothing against it. When did you get wounded? On the third day, getting, trying to get into Arnhem. We were coming in north of the railway, trying to get into Arnhem. That way, tactics had to go out of the window. Question of bash on. Just, we've got to get there. And of course, all the wounded were. When the remnants evacuated over the river, all the wounded were left to the Germans. And I must say, their conduct was was, was good. How, how were you wounded? I was uh, wounded in the foot, and the hip, and the shoulders by a rifle and a mortar fire. And so you, you were evacuated. Then, when the British, the British abandoned their wounded, effectively. Yes, all the wounded were left behind. About two thousand, over, over two thousand, with all the medics, etc. Were you focusing on your own wounds, or were you depressed and upset about what had happened to your, your unit, the men that you served with? I think more so. Yes, yes. We thought, well, one realised that you know the, the operation had been a failure. There were two thousand wounded left behind. We'd failed. And where did you spend the rest of the war? I went into a German hospital in Holland, where I was for about 
couple of months. But it's quite interesting because all the German wounded and the British wounded were all, we were all mixed up in the same wards, treated equally. And I must say, German, German medical treatment was good, except I remember our med chief medical officer which stayed behind, Graham Warwick, great man, he came around visiting the various hospitals where all the wounded were, British wounded. And he said, I've been around under escort. Yeah. And he said, the German battlefield surgery is 30 years behind ours. I remember the German orderly. I was put in a separate room after a bit. Uh, I could speak German then, apart from several wounds I had. I was in a little room. Two German surgeons came in looking like vets, British blood and all over the smocks. And they stood and talked for a bit. Then they, one of them said, the Major speaks German. And the German nurse came in and said, what did they say? And they said, they're going to amputate my leg. They said, oh, that's a And this German medical orderly, I told him, and he said, we have a joke in the German army. Never report sick with a headache. Well, chop it off. Mm. And when, so when you'd recovered sufficiently, did you go to a prisoner of war camp? Yeah. I was there for about a month. Then they went down in a German hospital train to a prison hospital in near Munich. But it took about five or six days or more because you know, the RF had been bombing the German rail network. But it was quite amusing. I was in a German hospital train, about 30, 30 wagons, at least... 25 were all German wounded, which is a good proportion. And any, any memories from your prisoner of war experience? It was quite good. I mean, it was pretty basic. Eventually, when I came out of what they call the hospital, went into the compound, it was um, very basic indeed. There were, and the German Russians were, were, were nil. I had the distinction of being given five days in the cells by the German commandant, marched in like a sort of private soldier, German colonel, sat in his desk a big full-length picture of Hitler behind. Came in five days in the cells. For what crime? Nick not saluting him. Nick's grossen Herr Oberst. We were in a other ranks camp. There was just about 50 officers, most of been captured in Greece or Yugoslavia or airborne officers in this camp of about 20,000 British, French and Russian prisoners of war. How were the Russians treated? Badly. Very badly. Starving. There was a story I, I speak was true. You no, know, the commandant of the camp afterwards was was killed. A particular thing they tried him on was they used to train the, the guard dogs, uh, and the passing out tests for a guard dog was to kill a Russian prisoner. They used to take Russian prisoners out of the camp into the woods, make them run down a ride in the forest, and he'd gone about 100 yards, set the dog off. The dog killed the, the prisoner, then he passed. That's what he was tried on. A lot of other things. I think he was strung up, actually. When I came out of the hospital, the, or what passed for a hospital, I went into a compound. There was about 30 officers. The, the rest were other rank, British, Russian and French. And there was about one compound of 30 officers, mostly being captured in Greece and Yugoslavia. The one South African officer had been in their special forces in northern Greece. He'd been captured during a resupply operation. He was, he was running a, a, a Greek secret army. He was taking a resupply operation and they used to have a code word when they, they were, say, going to drop four containers and the only money the Greek guerrillas and the Yugoslav guerrillas would take was gold sovereigns. 
they used to have a code word, the gold sovereigns are in the last container. So he watched out for this last container and he said, I heard a crash and a tinkling on the rocks. He said, I'm going back to that hill on my hands and knees. Ah. Could take, collect all these gold sovereigns. They're still up there. Well, that's what he hoped. I think the Greeks have been there first. Uh, do you remember liberation from that camp? Yes. Who, who arrived? The Americans. Very impressive. Moving fast. Patton himself came into the camp. And by that time, a lot of the other prisoner of war. This is a, a Stalag, Russian and French and British, other ranks. By that time, a lot of other camps had come in from, from, the, from the east, including a lot of American Air Force officers. And the day afterwards, we were talking to an American Air Force officer who'd been in this, this Eagle Squadron in 1940. You know, the, Amer the Americans formed an American squadron of the RAF, and he was wearing RAF wings as well. And he came over to us in the British compound, and uh, American officers of prison of war, they, they lost all their morale. They didn't shave. You know, they'd line up on roll call and spit. And I remember Patton came into our camp when he was rushing through into Yugoslavia, and we were talking to an American officer who had been in the RAF, actually. A lot of his American air crew had been shot down that had come into our camp. You know, they didn't shave, they didn't dress properly, and, and apparently Patton stood on the bonnet of a jeep, and they all crowded around him, he's like cheering like Americans are, and uh, apparently he, he bollocked them. He said, you're not maintaining your prestige as officers. But, um, we had a lot of Dunkirk prisoners, officers taken to Dunkirk. Their morale was, was flat. Five years in prison. Five years. And uh, this camp came down, there was a Lieutenant Colonel in the Welsh Guards who was a senior British officer. And our little group of airborne and special operations officers had to join with them on the, on the big roll calls. And after the roll call, and the Germans had got the right number, they used to hand over the parade to the British officer who then dismissed it in our little compound of mostly airborne and New Zealand and Australian Special Force troops. And the senior British officer and the colonel and the Welsh Guards, after he dismissed the rest of the Dunkirk prisoners, came over. We were told to stand fast. He came over and gave us a bollocking. He said, I'm appalled at your standard of turnout. And the New Zealand officer in the rail rank got our little group, oh, fuck off. <laughs> we did. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.